Good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Perfect. Hi guys, um, this is Donovan Brown. I'm a senior DevOps program manager here at Microsoft. I'm responsible for the DevOps vision on top of Team Foundation Server and on top of Visual Studio Team Services. I could not be more honored than I am today to have with me Sam. He is not only a colleague and a friend, but he's also my mentor. So Sam, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Sam Guckenheimer. I'm a product owner in Visual Studio Cloud Services. We do uh, what you know as TFS, Team Foundation Server, Visual yep. Studio Team Services. Uh, related uh, services like Application Insights. Yep, and uh, everything else that kind of rounds out our dev story and our dev offering to our users. That's correct. Great, and I want to make sure, I'm going to say something really quick. I've been saying this at every conference I can. Team Foundation Server and Visual Studio Team Services is for any language targeting any platform. It is not just for .NET. So I'm going to go ahead and put that plug out there. Oh, totally, really early. totally. Thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, so I think one of the things we're going to talk about today, we're going to actually cover two topics with Sam. Uh, and people have been actually sending in questions on Twitter, so we're going to make sure and get to those questions as well. One of them is rugged DevOps, and the other one is DevOps anti-pattern. So first, I think we're going to go ahead and talk about rugged DevOps. So why don't you define what rugged DevOps is for everyone first? Okay, well, rugged DevOps was coined, I think, by Gene Kim and Josh Corman about four years ago. Okay. And the idea is to, is to bring together the notions of DevOps and security. Uh, so, the, for example, there's a rugged DevOps Connect now that, that they do at the RSA conference. Oh, okay. Um, the, uh, and I spoke there uh, last year. The uh, problem that we have is, you know, DevOps came about because development got really agile. And that led to the realization that, hey, we, you know, we're doing potentially shippable increments. But we can't we, ship it. <laughs> we really ought to be going to production. So let's right. include ops. Right. And that became DevOps. Well, the next pillar that uh, is kind of isolated in most places is security. So uh, we're doing this fast very fast deployment, very fast iteration, small batches in DevOps, but our security practices say, hey, you you know, scan at the end of the release. We'll throw up issues, we'll generate a bunch of unplanned work, and we'll uh, de facto screw up that cycle. <laughs> so <coughs> um, the idea of rugged DevOps, and some folks call this DevSecOps, was what if we bring security into that? And when you say security, what are we talking about? Are we talking about pen test, uh, code scanning, static code analysis? What is security testing? Yes, so um, it's not just security testing. Okay. It's about securing the pipeline and the automation practices and the production environment. So this includes who can and cannot approve gates, for example, right? And who has access to starter deployment? Because that's security, too. Because if I'm the developer and I want to do something sneaky, I could start a release and then approve it myself. That would be a security hole, Yeah, right? so permissions are part of it. Okay. I would say they're not, they're not necessarily the hard sure. part of it, just getting you know, role-based permissions down. They, um, uh, they're bigger questions of, are the, if I'm consuming third-party components, like open source, okay, am I... Are the components I'm secure? I am. I am taking advantage of clean. Okay. Are they good versions? Are there any known vulnerabilities? Okay. Then, of course, if vulnerabilities are discovered, which happens all the time, think of Heartbleed, Ghost, sure. whatever. Right. How quickly can I remediate 
or detect and remediate all instances that are in production. Okay. Interesting. So the, the goal, and the goal with DevOps is that you get a very fast loop for time to detect and time to remediate. Absolutely. Okay. Don't you want that for security too? I want it for everything. Exactly. Okay. Yet, if you look at the practices that are used with security um, today, it's typically on a slower cycle and it's more about hardening and it's more about protecting the perimeter and so forth, as opposed to saying, boy, we need to get as infinitesimally fast on time to detect, time to remediate, and as good at protection and anomaly detection and all of these other uh, steps that DevOps is supposed to help with. We need to get as good at that for all the security vulnerabilities and all of the attacks that we face as we are at just pushing code out. Correct. Okay, that today has been a really disconnected discussion. Gotcha. So I'm sure the next question that I'm going to be asked is, so what's Microsoft doing about it? Right? So that's that's what we're here. As product group, as yeah. product managers, we're going off and figuring out, okay, we now have this problem of people, and I, I completely agree, I think the fact that we've gotten so good at producing value has just exaggerated why DevOps is so important. Because we're producing value, yet we can't deliver it. A lot of people are just failing to deliver it. And what you're pointing out is those that are succeeding to deliver it are delivering it and sometimes becoming more vulnerable because of it, because they're not thinking about that. So what are we on the VSTS team, or I should say team services team and team foundation server, how are we going to go and try to address those? Well, let me let me s start with a broader question. What okay. are we Microsoft doing about it? Okay. okay. So, so the first thing we're doing, of course, is making Azure the most secure place to uh, work and deploy. And we're continually upping the bar in terms of our own uh, compliance and certification. Same is true for team services as a, as a uh, service on top of that. So yeah. um, uh, that's why we've gone for things like SOC 2 compliance, ISO 27001, and so forth. Um, now, the... Uh, Azure is going hard on operational security uh, with Azure Security Center. We in Team Services are uh, going hard on working with partners to enable a process that includes secure package management, mm -hmm. okay, so that you know what you're consuming, so that you can have security built into the release pipeline right. so that you uh, can have a build task or uh, a build definition encompassing that task that will, you know, scan your code so that you can, in turn, use similar tooling and release to audit what is actually flowing out into production as part of that. Gotcha. Okay. So that that's the that's the path we're good we're going now. Uh, there are a bunch of very good players who've been. Uh, focusing on parts of that pipeline. So uh, companies like, you know, White Source and Black Duck and, uh, come to mind in terms of scanning components coming in. Okay. Okay. Um, the, there are a bunch of people who are, who've specialized in uh, static analysis for security scanning. Uh, so you take companies like uh, Checkmarks or HP Fortify or Veracode, 
and um, uh, that fits in with what you produce, okay? And then many of them will then audit as well what f flows into production or do uh, uh, dynamic scanning on, on the sites you produce. So we're, we're working on, on all the angles of that. So we're going to be producing uh, extensions possibly that you'd be able to add on to your pipelines via an extension? Yeah, so look for a number of extensions in the marketplace and look for some guidance on where those uh, play, how those come in. Yeah, we'll make sure uh, a lot of people aren't aware yet because we're working on it now as the DevOps Atlas. You might have seen some emails going around where we're building this this thought leadership in this site, this point, point to, I go and I do these demos and people love the demos and then they ask me, so Donovan, where do I go to get started? And yeah. I don't have a really good place of pointing them and I got tired of saying I, I don't have a good place. So we're going off and we're building that content for you guys and we'll make sure that we have some articles maybe we'll get you to author some of them for Rugged DevOps for us on that site as yeah, well. Yeah, and, and I've got a linked area that's coming on uh, visualstudio.com uh, for uh, what we do at Microsoft and how we practice. Perfect, yeah, because we do have the one story of how we've actually gotten to this cloud cadence that we're on today, too, which is a great document. If you haven't read that, I highly encourage that uh, you read that, too. So let, why don't we answer some of the questions that were asked uh, via Twitter today. So and, and, and if you guys do want to ask, I have some, like Aaron's coming on uh, for planning. We have Thomas from the Hockey App team coming on for Mobile DevOps. Perfect. So we have some future shows coming. And if you want to have some questions answered there, just go ahead and do use hashtag hashtag DevOps interviews, and then I go and I go CD comb that hashtag and, and answer the questions. So some of the questions we got was, has Rugged DevOps come about just to placate security professionals who are uncomfortable with uh, adopting DevOps? <laughs> it's not about placating security I didn't think professionals. So. <laughs> <Exactly>. Okay, so <laughs> um, it, uh, the security issue is real. We have a saying here, for example, assume breach. That means that uh, unlike in the you know, five or ten years ago when when your security strategy was protect the perimeter, build thicker and higher castle walls to keep the bad guys out, assume they have found a back door in. So that uh, very frequently these days is through social engineering. You spear phishing. Um, they, uh, the famous, the most famous uh, breaches with data exfiltration like the uh, U.S. government uh, Office of Personnel Management, uh, Sony, uh, Target, what have you, all started with some form of social engineering to uh, get credentials either from uh, an employee or from a contractor of a target organization. Gotcha. And uh, it was all done in a very sort of invisible way. Hmm. So um, the attack would would start with, you know, careful reconnaissance of where the vulnerabilities are. And then maybe through watering holes or something like that, they would get to uh, a set of compromised credentials and through those be able to thread their way into the corporate network and then plant themselves in there and do reconnaissance from the inside gotcha. and plant command and control servers on the inside that they could use to exfiltrate data. Gotcha, so, and, and a lot of us were naive in thinking that as long as, like you said, we don't let them in, then we're okay. So the security on the inside is always a lot more laxed, right? You can get to things exactly. a lot easier. And that's a fallacy because 
they're already on the inside is the way you need to be working. So even if I'm on the inside, getting to sensitive data should not be trivial. It should not be easy. I should have to authenticate who I am and verify that I have access to that data. Yeah, how often have you heard, oh, this is just test data? <laughs> <laughs> well, a, a lot. And that funny thing is, is that test data used to be production data, and they just took a backup and restored it, right? And that data is like really sensitive information. So I know a lot of people that I have to, when I was a consultant, I would have to slap their hands. I'm like, that's not really testing. Or maybe it's, you know, passwords.txt. Exactly, right? No right? one's going yeah, to find, no find that. It's so uh, obfuscated. So, so uh, we, we just say, assume you're breached. Gotcha. Assume they're inside. Assume that, that you have uh, attackers who are already sitting inside your network, and they may be there lying dormant. They may be there doing reconnaissance. But you have to uh, get them out. So it's not. So going back to the question, um, it's not about placating security. It's about a new type of defense. Now, one of the best types of defense is don't have a stable network. So if you if you have a static network, then you're creating places for attackers to hide. Okay. Okay. If you're constantly reprovisioning and refreshing, then uh, it doesn't matter if they set up a server a anyway. there. T today it'll be gone with the next deployment. Gotcha. So part of that still makes me a little nervous, right? Because if that's if that's my attitude, it, to me you haven't fixed the problem, right? You just fixed the symptom, and if I know the vulnerability exists, well, I just know oh. tomorrow I have to redeploy it again. My my my. Yeah, to totally, totally. You should not be allowing known vulnerabilities to exist. Yeah, and just wipe But it how out. are you going to discover known vulnerabilities? You're going to discover known vulnerabilities through really good anomaly detection and sure. telemetry, and you're going to fix them. Right. Okay? What you should not do is assume... That you're safe. ...that you're safe <laughs> because it's on the inside. Gotcha. Okay? Once they're on the inside, you're very vulnerable. And, I mean, and the record is that uh, the one of the easiest paths in these days is social engineering. So um, we need to embrace security and embrace it throughout. I mean, a, a simple example that that uh, we live is multi-factor authentication. It's been on the tip of my tongue, too. I mean, it's almost, it's it feels like it's such a burden on us to have to do that and constantly have my phone. And, but then if you realize how safe we are now because of that, right? It's, it's a small price to pay. We're safer. Yeah, safer, yeah. But it's <laughs> a, and it's really a small price to pay, right? We've made that as convenient as we can with a quick app and, and you're back right. in there. But I have to tell you, sometimes I do get frustrated, but then I always revert back to, if we didn't do this, I mean, this could something really, really bad could happen, right? So this is a small price for me to pay to make sure that everything's safe. Yeah, something really bad still can happen. For sure. For sure, but it <laughs> we're, we're it's, mitigating that. We're trying to reduce the the, uh, the odds of that. It's happening. making it harder. It's making sure. it harder on a daily basis. Right, and we're constantly having to go back in and, and figure out other ways to make sure that we're safe because they're always trying to figure out other ways that they can go in and take right. advantage of. Right, right. As a, a defender, yeah. yeah. As a defender, you need to be right all the time. As a an attacker, you only need to be right well, once. That's yeah, that's pretty powerful. Scary, but true. All right, so let's go back and obviously we've kind of touched on this already. So what tooling is, does Microsoft have in place to ease the adoption of rugged DevOps? I think um, that yeah. So I think that that we are uh, uh, we've got great release management now. I agree. And we have uh, a really good pipeline. We are working with the 
partners who have specialist services so that they will have uh, extensions that plug into that. Yeah, so I think the marketplace going is going to be key. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. key in, in helping us fix this because we're never going to be able to create everything that you need, but we'll be able to integrate with those who exactly. have. And that's what I think is, is really, really powerful about our new offering is that people always ask me, Donovan, can you do X? I'm like, is there a command line interface or a REST API that does X? And the answer is yes, because if you show me either one of those, I will show you how I can use it in our build and our release system this very instant exactly. without any extensions, with nothing. I have everything in the box that I need to do that. And what we're going to do over time is polish that experience to make it just easier and easier for you to do. But if there is a command line or if there's a REST API, we can literally exploit it today. Right? And that's what I mean. Any testing framework, anything you want to do, just show me a command line or a REST API, and I'll show you how to do it with our system. So um, I love the fact that we can do that, and I love the fact that our extensions, our marketplace is growing so fast because I go there all the time. I've published some extensions, and I kind of like to see who else is coming in there and what cool value that they've just added to the system. So it's fantastic. Yeah. Right. Cool. Uh, what else do we have here? Um, there's been gaps in security auditing around TFS in the past. What is VSTS and on-premises TFS doing to address this? I'm not sure specifically what they might well, be referring so, to. Well, so where we, we have not been great um, is in providing uh, self-service auditing. Ah, yeah, I've, I've been asked that all the time. Donovan, how can I track down exactly who's ever touched this piece of code because I'm going to have to get socks audited. Right? right. That kind of stuff. Right. So we, you know, in doing... Uh, SOC 2 compliance and ISO compliance and stuff like that, we've demonstrated that we have uh, all of that capability in the data yes. and in-house. Um, we need to get better, uh, and I think the question's fair, at providing uh, self-service auditing for customers. We're, we're doing uh, some of that improvement as we're uh, taking enterprises and onboarding them to the cloud. Um, so there's a lot of work that's gone around uh, looking at everything people do with process customization, everything they do with identities, and uh, uh, having tooling for that and, and diffing for that. It, it uh, uh, needs to be uh, stitched together a little bit better. For right. Because I think my answer a lot of times for customers at the past was the data's in there, right? I right. can tell you that, but getting to the data was really painful, right? The, the queries you'd have to run or the reports you'd have to write or you have to go down to the API and write some custom code to go find out that, que that answer to that question that you had. And uh, so that's one thing I always say, like, well, the data's in there, right? But getting yeah. the data out, we had yeah. to do a better job. So, yeah. okay, great. Uh, now, this one's a little bit longer, so let's get this one here. It says, um, one of the seven habits of rugged DevOps is discar discarding detailed security roadmaps. That sounds like something that would make chef security officers, or I'm sorry, chief security officers and leadership in information security organizations block the approach immediately. Uh, what have you talked uh, what have you talked to these people in leadership positions through to gain confidence in the approach and the others that take this guidance? Okay, so first of all, I think that's a reference to Amy Martini's report okay. and uh, talk, Seven Habits of Rugged DevOps. Okay. So she's a Forrester analyst. Okay. Um, she uh, did this talk at uh, Rugged DevOps Connect that I mentioned earlier. Okay. Um, and there's, she's written at least one paper on this. I don't know if she's written more than one. So the, 
and, and I think she's being quoted a little bit out of context. Okay. So the, the practice she refers to is instead of relying on just detailed security road maps, do incremental improvement in small batches. Okay, so the, uh, and the example she cites, one of the examples she cites is the Office of Personnel Management, which lost, I don't know, 20 million some government employees uh, credentials and, you know, identities, social security numbers and things like that. Uh, had a very detailed security roadmap in place, but they weren't doing uh, incremental inspection. They didn't have effective anomaly detection. Uh, and they were subject to uh, an attack that we believe began with spear phishing. Um, so the was again a case where the attacker got inside, was unnoticed in static infrastructure, managed to embed servers inside the target's network, mm. in this case the U.S. government, and exfiltrate data on an ongoing basis. And so the, uh, the point is that you need to uh, work in a loop. Um, uh, Boyd's OODA loop, um, observe, orient, decide, act, or if you like Deming, plan, check, do, act. But work in a very tight loop. And Boyd you know, had this great saying that you, he, he was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and he, he said, your goal is to get inside your adversary's OODA loop. Well, that's totally clear in security. So you need to be able to get inside the attacker's OODA loop so that you can observe the attack as it's happening, push out the infiltration, protect the data, block any uh, any actions like lateral movement across the networks, block any uh, misuse of credentials, roll the credentials, roll the secrets, all of these things that, that will make it that much harder for an attacker to be persistent. So you need to do this in a continual loop. Gotcha. And making security continuous is part of the idea here of making DevOps rugged. All right. Well, yeah, I still have a lot to learn there as well. Because I remember the first time you brought this to me, I had to, when you described it, I had a completely different picture in my mind of what it was supposed to be. And then you and I had another chat about it. And that's why I thought if it took me two times to, to get it, maybe we should have a, an interview over okay. it. And maybe people can watch this a couple times and it'll it'll sink in. But it's, it's much clearer now uh, on what, what the goals are of that particular initiative. And, and I, I know that we have a platform po on w upon which we can build a really amazing uh, DevOps offering there. All right, so if there's nothing else you want to say on Rugged DevOps, we're going to switch to the other topic that we kind of wanted to cover, which this came out of, uh, I did this really weird talk in, in Dev Days. They wanted me to do three talks. I didn't have time to prepare three talks. So I did two, and I said, I'll give you 45 minutes. Ask me anything Unpunked. you want. Yeah, just like literally, it's just got a 45-minute Q&A. You can ask me whatever you want. And I was afraid no one would show up. But a lot of people showed up. And we actually ran over time, right? We had that many questions, which was great. And one of the questions was, is Donovan, you've been here all weekend. You're telling us what to do. What are we not supposed to do? I thought that was a really interesting question. Someone's asked me, how, what should I not do when I want to go to DevOps? And my first response was, stop asking for permission. Right? Stop asking for permission to do the right thing for your company. Right? If you don't have a CI build, just go put one 
into your pipeline. If you don't have unit tests, just go write the unit test. When you go to someone who's been doing it the same way for 30 years with no CI and no unit tests and trying to convince them that you need to slow down to do this stuff, they're never going to give you permission to do that because to them it's not broken. We're right. one of the largest X companies in the world doing it the way we've been doing it for 30 years. Stop trying to convince this person that that's a good idea. Just go do the right thing for your company. And then the benefits will, in my opinion, speak for themselves because lower air issues, faster time to delivery. You have to pay something up front. But what other things? Oh, first of all, I'm curious. Do you agree with that? Or would you completely say, oh, my God, I would never do that? Well, so I certainly agree with the examples you have. Okay, so, uh, continuous integration unit testing, just do it. Yes. Um, the uh, I think you need to, in a DevOps world, pay attention to things you may not have been paying attention to as uh, carefully before. So for, for example, example, technical debt. It's <laughs> a big okay. one. Yeah. So if you have a pile of technical debt, it's going to throw up uh, unplanned work. And that unplanned work is gonna bite you the form of live site incidents, outages, uh, you know, slowed velocity, single points of failure, absolutely. all sorts of stuff that you do not want, and so you need to um, be quite conscious of technical debt, and you need to be quite conscious that that we're going to you know reserve part of our backlog and part of our capacity for engineering improvement. Right. And that engineering improvement is going to help us be cleaner and be faster. So you optimize for speed and predictable speed, um, and through that you'll get the benefits. Right, what I've noticed is, is that until I have numbers though, having a conversation like the one that you just described goes nowhere, right? I, I, I can beat up and down and yell and bang my chest that I need more QA, I, I need these people, and I remember they would never give me the resources that I needed until I went back one sprint once and I calculated how many estimates that we have for development work and then I got my QA team to estimate how long they thought it was going to take them to actually test that work and the numbers were so gigantically off and if I finally had the numbers and then I got the resources that I needed and I think tools like SonarCube are finally going to allow me to have the numbers that I need to go have that conversation with someone who doesn't even understand what technical debt is. Do you think that's a fair? Or I think that's fair. I mean I think you just you just hit on two anti-patterns actually. One is trying to optimize for cost. Right. Okay and the other one is not understanding the value stream. So the, uh, if you try to optimize for cost, you know, the uh, classic uh, with less part of the argument, then you're going to say, hey, what, what's here that's expensive that we don't need to do? Testing. <laughs> if you optimize for speed, on the other hand, so that your mindset shifts from what can we do to reduce mean time between failure to what can we do to reduce mean time to detect and mean time to mitigate, then you'll get the cost benefits. But you'll get them by making the pipeline more rugged. You'll get them by improving the, the speed. And you'll discover that using techniques like, like automated deployment, automated testing, exposure control, all of these things, allow you to take on risks that you otherwise would never have taken on before because you're, you're thinking about that speed. You, you'll get the benefits back here. I, that, 
Go ahead. Okay. The second part of that, which was implicit in your, your question, was that you weren't looking at the value stream as a whole. In other words, what does it take for us to get from idea to code working in production? Or what does it take us to get from a live site incident to Fix. a mitigation and root cause remediation running in production? So right. those kinds of cycles are really important. How many steps and how many handoffs are there in between? Okay, if you don't focus on that entire value stream and what do you need to do in, in the whole, then you're going to get tuned into a silo in the middle, ignoring the handoffs around it. Well, if you're going around all the time, what matters is the transition time, not the time in the silo. Gotcha. I've heard this statement a lot, and you, and you make it a lot too. It's about mean time to detection and... and and I, and I and unfortunately, I've heard some people come back and challenge me on like, well, does that mean the developers are just going to like reduce their quality, throw it into production and wait for production to tell them that it's broken, right? It seemed like they almost use that as an excuse to do less engineering up front because we're going to be able to fix it really fast. So let's just fail fast and, and throw garbage out into production. But I, I hear people interpreting that way, but it's clearly not what you're trying to say. No, not at all. So if you're using production experience, uh, and you have the telemetry in production, then you can harden your testing based on what actually happens in production. And you can automate more. Now, what you need to automate, you of course need to automate testing. You need to automate it at the uh, lowest level. So in other words, not rely on uh, UI clicks, for example, to find bad data, but really uh, look at the interface contract. Is it subject to um, uh, appropriate data safeguards or do going back to security, have we introduced their uh, uh, vulnerability for cross-site scripting because we're not guarding the input? Okay, All of that testing needs to be highly automated in the pipeline. And the testing should be the contract. So I... Fair enough commit new code or I make a pull request before then, does it pass the tests that are there? Okay, and then right. does it pass the next stage of testing in the pipeline before release? It shouldn't be a judgment question about whether it'll work. Now, the, the place for experimentation, which is where you're going with the question, is that we're doing stuff all the time. And, you know, in the days of Agile, we had this idea, oh, we'll let the product owner figure out the business value, right? And tell us what the right stack rank is for the backlog. Well, you know, we're not as smart as our customers. <laughs> and um, so you have to sort of assume that you're going to be right a third of the time and wrong a third of the time, and a third of the time it's going to make no difference. If you are with me on that, then you say, well, what we want to do is we want to get as many little increments out to, to at least exposure control, so a uh, suitable subset of usage, so we can test whether they're the right things. 
because so this is A/B testing and things like that. It's A/B testing and it's feature flagging right. and it's it's uh, it can be uh, just trying a, a new enhancement against so doing a treatment against a control in any form. Okay. Okay. All of these uh, are valid, and you need to get the data back from that. So does it make the positive difference? against the hypothesis we had for the change right. we're trying to make. And if it does, do more. Right. If it doesn't, you do need, less. Exactly. It's, it's the whole inspect and adapt. So that's not, that's not throwing poor quality out there. Okay. That is using the hypothesis to determine what the experiment is against which you want to collect data in order to get the validated learning of what more to do. Perfect. And it, that is independent of keeping a good pipeline. And of course, if you don't have good performance, if you don't have great availability, if you don't have great security, none of that works because all of the experimental results are polluted by the poor qualities of service. Gotcha. So you need to get rid of the technical debt. You need to have great automation. You need to have clean pipeline. You need to be able to move fast. And you need to work in these small batches that let you collect lots of learning frequently. All right. Or as Boyd said, get inside your adversary's OODA loop. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was challenged at uh, TR when someone came up behind me after and says, Donovan, I I'm confused. Um, I thought DevOps meant no manual testing. Right, and, and I kind of looked at him like, no, we want to automate everything that we can. I don't necessarily mean that it means you're going to automate everything always. Because in the example that I gave them was, let's just imagine that you have a user interface on an application, and it has a button in it. And that button says, OK. And you have to localize that button into 11 different languages. OK is going to be of varying lengths in every language. And it's really hard for a computer to tell me, yes, you localized it correctly, and the button stretched long enough and had the right path. And it looked good to me, right? It said, a human being is going to need to look at that and tell me not only that we translated it, but that it actually fit the screen. So I, as soon as there's a user interface, my knee-jerk reaction is there will be, I want a human being to look at that user interface and make sure it looks good. So our pipeline needs to be mature enough such that it automates everything that it possibly can and then can pause until I go in and do whatever validation, whatever that validation I feel needs to be. It could be running exploratory testing. It could be running some UI testing. And then I push the button that says it's okay to go forward. Do you, and the only time I can ever imagine you having a 100% automated pipeline is for an API, maybe a REST API. There is no user interface. I can test the exact 100% of that without ever seeing a user interface. That's the only time I can imagine you wouldn't have manual testing. How do you feel about that? I, I, I'll repeat a great story I heard from Etsy. Okay. You know, and Etsy is like a poster child for DevOps, right? So they... Um, had an experience where someone changed a CSS file that controlled how all these web pages were displayed. And they put it through all their stages, passed all the automation, no problem, pushed it out. And they then started noticing that there was this decline in new user sign-up. And that's really interesting. So they started looking at the new user sign-up experience. Well, it turns out that that CSS change had meant that the text in the button, the confirm button for 
sign me up, I want to register for the site, the text and the background color of the button same. became the same. <laughs> so they were effectively asking people to push a blank button. Now, no one inside Etsy went through new user sign-up because they were already all registered. Exactly. Um, and your automated testing would click the button because it, it knows to click that button regardless if it can see it or not. Exactly. Exactly. So for so, anyone who thinks that you're, you're going to be able to uh, completely get rid of that, there, we're not there yet. Maybe. Maybe one day we have software that's smart well, enough to realize that was there. Or This is an argument both for exploratory testing and for exposure control. So you want that's to... That's true. You want to see, with a small cohort of users, what the impact of the change of every change is before it goes broad. Right, and we do that with our with our our, our rings of deployment for yep. all. We do that with all of those our scale units. Uh, now you mentioned two things to me that I think are like A/B testing and feature flagging. To me, they're not mutually exclusive, right? No. Okay, good. Okay, good. So when you said them that way, I wasn't sure if that's what you were implying because I would use feature flags to be able to turn it on just for a few people and then turn it off for the other people. Yeah, so typically when people talk about A-B testing. Or blue-green, those are synonymous? Blue-green deployment is a little, a little different. bit different. Okay, okay let, let's run through all of those. Okay. okay. So the most common use of A-B testing is that you have uh, alternate versions of a web page okay with a change and you uh, look at the conversion or revenue or whatever metrics from the two and you say ah which one's better okay um, now you can do this for things that are deeper than web pages of course it's not done that that frequently the idea of feature flags is that you anywhere in the code register a flag yep so that your code is always deployed and the flag is down and you only raise the flag to a select group of identities as you need to and you can raise it and lower it in production and there are a few mechanisms for this uh, uh, launch darkly is yep. a good is a good partner we have uh, who offers this as a service um, the so this can be used for Assessing the treatment against the control, whether it's uh, you know multiple changes at once or one change at once or what have you, and then blue green is a is a deployment approach, which says I keep the I keep version n hot as I deploy n plus one. Right. If I see a problem in n plus one, I kill it and review to revert to n. Gotcha, gotcha. It's not really an experiment as much as, I'm not comparing these two, I'm trying to roll this out safely, and if I see trouble, I simply pull it back. Where A-B testing is, I they're both working, I just want to see which one I believe is working better, not necessarily a deployment mechanism as an experiment that we're trying to run. Yeah, so they're all, they're all slightly different um, technical implementations that allow you to do comparisons. Right of what's happening in production. Right, and an interesting story, I mean, to go back to the Etsy story you gave, uh, the fact that they determined that there was a degradation in new sign-up meant that they had monitoring in place. Right. Which is a key point right. that people need to understand, as well as that 
You need, I always say that DevOps for me is taking that idea and monitoring that idea in production. Not just pushing it into production, but monitoring it in production. Understanding, did I truly deliver value? And I don't know that if I just copy files and then run away from those files. I need to see, did people find it? Are people using that new feature? Are they able to perform that activity quicker than they did before? Because delivering value isn't changing my application always. It could just be upgrading my infrastructure. And I can still deliver value because the amount of time it takes to check out now is much shorter and more people are now doing it. So. I found that it's it's taking that idea and monitoring that idea. And a lot of people lose the monitoring side, right? They they don't have even implemented it yet and they're just happy that they're quickly pushing code into production, which I think is it could be dangerous. Uh, even for the back to the rugged DevOps stuff. You're quickly pushing stuff out there, but you don't know if what you're pushing out there is safe or if you've had the button and the background be the same color and people aren't clicking it because you're not monitoring what you're actually doing. So Yeah, I'd go a step further. I'd okay. I'd say that the new definition of done is that you, your new software is deployed and collecting the data or your environment's collecting the data that is sufficient to determine the validity of the hypothesis that uh, was behind the, the new right. Or help you reject it if it weren't, right? Right, so, so it'll substantiate or diminish the hypothesis. Absolutely. But the point is you need to be you need to have sufficient telemetry or monitoring to collect the data that will let you make the data-informed decision about what what you just deployed. Right. And uh, and you're not done unless that data is coming through. And I've had a lot of people get confused on telemetry versus logging. Right. So a lot of people are like, so what should we? What should our telemetry look like? And and I said, like, well, it depends on what question you're asking. I, I can't tell you that. There's no go to chapter five for feature X telemetry. Right? I mean, depending on the feature that you're deploying, there's obviously questions you're trying to answer, and you need to put in enough telemetry, not logging necessarily, but telemetry that says, is this feature being used? Uh, maybe I want to know how much money is in a shopping cart before it gets abandoned. Maybe I should have given them a coupon or a promo code that might have been able to, to turn that cart into revenue versus them abandoning it because the number got so big and scary that they abandoned it. So. But the telemetry that you collect there is different. It's definitely different than logging, right, for I want to figure out why my system's crashing. Well, it's not an either or. It's a both end. Okay. Okay. The, and, and I think the, the core issue here is what is the latency uh, between the, the real-time experience and your use of the data? Okay. Okay. So, and, and for what scenarios? All right, so uh, if you are looking at live site health, you want it to be instant. If there's you know, a problem in the Brazilian data center, you want to know within milliseconds. Right. Okay. Now, when you identify that there is a problem, you next need to gather up enough stuff to do troubleshooting. Correct. And that's where you may be looking at server logs, you may be looking at other telemetry, you may be gathering a trace right. that takes you back. Right. What I think I find customers doing is they're putting their logging in their telemetry. I don't think those are the two same buckets no, of data. No, no. Exactly. So you want to get the very fast data uh, for real-time observation, you want a very thin, efficient data pipe. Right. 
that may lead you to gather more data that you will then go uh, work your way through. So for example, uh, here we use uh, what's now a Application Insights Analytics. Right. Internally we call it Custo. Custo, yeah. So Custo is ingesting, a, I looked at this last week, about 800 terabytes a day on the services monitored in Azure, including tons of logs, t tons of data, what have you. And people will get from the live site alerting an indication of what to look at from the Custo data, and then we'll be able to do all sorts of ad hoc querying on it, okay, and, and you know, pinpoint a cause. Right, gotcha. or they'll use this to get to live site. But you you want this very efficient stream to tell you there is a problem, it's there, and then you can you can go deeper. Gotcha. Now the other thing is that we talked about is is usage, where typically you're looking at data that uh, should be current but doesn't need to be real time. Right. So in other words, it doesn't really matter that, you know, you know usage as of five seconds ago. It does matter that you know it over the last week. Right. Up to some reasonable threshold. Gotcha. And you do want to do historical comparisons on it, but you don't care in that usage data about the, you know, log level data and stuff right. like that beyond the last week or last month or what have you. Perfect. All right, so um, one other thing you just want, I want to double click on feature flags one more time. Um, because you can also use feature flags to hide a feature that's not done yet. That's right. Right, which is a lot of people are doing. I'm going to talk to, to uh, Aaron about planning, and I know feature flags will come yeah. up there too. Is that you put the feature behind a flag immediately. Yeah. And then exactly. if it takes more than a sprint to do, then you obviously you don't want to cherry pick your changes, you just leave that flag off. You push mm -hmm. it into production. It's no harm, no foul, because no one can see it. And when you're ready for people to see it, you can then lift that flag. Right. Yeah, so the, the, the great thing about feature flags is that in the old days, if Aaron or anyone else wanted to work on something that you know, would take longer than a sprint, the answer was, oh, go create a branch, branch. Yeah. right? And then you're off in your branch for three months, and you come back, and you try to merge, and everything's on the floor for two weeks, yeah. right? So this avoids that merge debt because Absolutely. the code is always together. Uh, and you, instead of, instead of that, you, you're merging continuously in tiny, tiny increments when the code is fresh, and you don't have any merge conflict, and then you control exposure in runtime to determine how well things are, are fitting for your users and for so, everything else. So when do you go back and finally remove the flag? Because that does not become technical debt. Your cyclomatic complexity goes up because you have these if statements everywhere. All of them, it's always revolt, I mean, revolved to true now because we are turning on all the flags that feature's done. I mean, you now have to go back in at some point and pay the price to clean all that up, don't you? Yes, you do. You okay. do need to clean them up at some point, gotcha. um, and that's a uh, that's an every now and then thing. Gotcha. It's not a huge problem. No, no, and and I think it's a small price to pay for what it what it gives you. Right. Like you said uh, merge conflicts are 
they're the bane of branches, right? That, right? That's the cost of a branch is the fact that you just right. have a merge. In any source control system, right, you want to get back in, into master as quickly as you can so that you don't have that, that merge conflict. So um, we're going to wrap up here in a little bit, but there's a couple questions I had uh, that came to me last minute was, where's does DevOps not a good fit? Huh, right. And okay. one of them, one of the examples was <laughs> desktop apps. But to me, I don't see why, I don't see why I would not apply these same principles to a desktop app as well. Well, increasingly, we've been doing that. We've been putting a much better telemetry in Visual Studio, the IDE. Yeah. Um, we have been following these practices for, for that. Uh, you take the the Office apps, mm -hmm. same thing. Right. Um, so, so I I don't think that's uh, the fact that it's on a desktop, I, or a laptop. I don't think is a constraint um, on the desirability. Sometimes it's just hard to do. Agreed. Um, so uh, the it's hard, particularly where you run into situations of opt in. Uh, so, for example, we. Uh, this is true for us with, with uh, the Visual Studio ID. You have to opt in to allow us to collect data. Um, uh, and that certainly skews the sampling. Right. Um, the, uh, but I think that the techniques are, are very applicable. I mean, I, I have a hard time imagining where places where DevOps principles are not good to do um, the uh, I um, you know I would turn it around and say where do you want to work slower in larger batches with um, poor time to detect poor time to remediate less visibility Nowhere. and feedback <laughs> Because like, I don't, I don't see where I would not want uh, continuous integration, continuous testing, continuous. I just don't know where I wouldn't want that, right? I, I have, I have fat client apps that I still, still maintain, and I run them through the same pipeline I run my, my web apps to. It's just their final destination is different, right? Yeah, I would go back and say there may be environmental conditions that you have to clean up in order to get to a DevOps sure. model. We mentioned technical debt, sure. so if you do not have. Uh, clean infrastructure. If you only have snowflaked yeah. deployments, um, uh, so you can't uh, provision environments easily, or or do infrastructure as code, or do paths. If you have technical debt in the code with right. high bug counts and uh, lots of live site incidents and things like that, then you have to uh, clean that up. Um, I would say. Uh, this is a good example of the maxim, uh, if it hurts, do, do it, it more, more often. often. Exactly, uh, which is interesting because uh, it, it, it brings it to the forefront that, oh my God, we need to fix this, right? If I only do it once a year, yeah, I dread it, but I only do it once a year. Right. I have to pay this price every day, we're gonna fix this, right? Because I can't afford to pay this every single day. So it's a really good way of saying, hey, just do it, even if it hurts. So that brings me back to a question of, should we automate a bad process, right? If, if we have a horrible process, should we just start trying to automate it so that we see how bad it is more often that will encourage us to fix it? Or should you fix your process before you try to automate? 
You should try to fix your process before you automate, but you should do it incrementally. incrementally. Yeah, I, I tell customers that. So uh, do it in small batches. I mean, we have, for example, here um, the idea of planning by epic. Mm -hmm. One of our epics is engineering improvements. In engineering improvements, we have a set of North Star metrics, okay, about things like, you know, how quickly we can deploy, how quickly can we run tests, how uh, good we are at live site incident detection and mitigation and so forth. Right. And each of those is a, uh, is a metric with a goal. And every sprint, we report progress against those metrics and goals, just like we do on all the customer-facing epics. Now, customers don't see our you know, deployment pipeline. These are things for us. Sure. But the point is we plan the engineering improvements on the same process and the same cadence as we do the customer-facing ones. Right. Yeah, I, I try to find other places that I can actually apply these processes, right? So I look around, I'm like, oh, I haven't seen anyone doing a lot of SharePoint DevOps work, so let me go find out how I can actually apply all these same best practices to SharePoint. Mobile, we, we're taking that on full force, right, with HockeyApp and Xamarin. Instead of saying, where does it not fit, we're, I, I go out and say, where have I not seen it yet? Right, and let me go see if I can add this value to mobile. Can I add it to uh, SharePoint? Can I add it to ACS? Can I add? Where can I add more DevOps value versus ever saying, "Oh, it just doesn't fit there," right? Which is which is the way I look at it. I had a customer talking to me about SharePoint last week. I'm I'm working on it. I have a couple of buddy, a buddy of mine, Krim, and I are working on it right now. So right. when I have spare cycles, I have I literally I have a team project that has all these SharePoint projects in it, and we have the build going right now, and we're about to start pushing it out into both SharePoint hosted and provider hosted applications, so that we can have a nice prescriptive. It's going to be used to be a SharePoint extension that says add this and then all that SharePoint heartache goes away for you, right? So that's how I look at this question is not, where is it not a good fit? It's just where have we not done it yet? So I can go do it. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Makes Sam, sense. I really do appreciate you taking the time and coming to talk to me and the people who watch the show. I have a feeling they're going to find this very valuable. Uh, and if there's any time that you want to come and have another chat with me, you just let me know. Happy to. All right. Thanks, guys. Take thanks, care. Thanks, Donovan. See ya. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, all.